From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Saturday afternoon session of the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session is provided by a combined choir of students from Brigham Young University. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the first presidency of the church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Saturday afternoon session of the 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings to all who are in attendance or who are participating by means of television, radio, or the internet. We likewise welcome those who are viewing the proceedings in stake centers in various parts of the world where the conference is being carried by satellite transmission. The music for this session will be provided by a combined choir of students from Brigham Young University under the direction of Rosalind Hall and Andrew Crane with Linda Margetts and Bonnie Goodliffe at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing, Come, O Thou King of Kings. The invoca invocation will then be offered by Elder Brent H. Nielsen of the Seventy.
Our Father in heaven, we are gathered together today in this conference center and in places around the world as members and friends of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We love thee, Father. We love thy Son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for his atoning sacrifice and that makes all things possible for us. We are grateful for prophets and apostles who will teach us today, and we bless. We ask you to bless us with eyes to see and ears to hear. We are grateful for temples that help us connect to thee. We are especially grateful for our missionaries who serve all across the world, and we ask you to please bless them with safety and health and success. We ask for thy spirit to be with us during this meeting. Please open the heavens to us that we might be able to know what we should do and how we should act. We love thee and we pray for these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Dallin H. Oaks will now present the General Authorities, Area 70s, and Generally Auxiliary Presidencies of the Church for a sustaining vote, after which Kevin R. Jurgensen, Managing Director of the Church Auditing Department, will read the annual report. I will now present the General Authorities, Area 70s, and General Auxiliary Presidencies of the Church for sustaining vote. It is proposed that we sustain Russell, Mary, and Nelson as Prophet, Seer, and Revelator, and President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Dallin Harris Oaks as First Counselor in the First Presidency and Henry Benyon Eyring as second counselor in the First Presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain Dallin H. Oaks as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and M. Russell Ballard as acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Those in favor, please signify. Any opposed may manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain the following as members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. M. Russell Ballard, Jeffrey R. Holland, Dieter F. Uchtdorf, David A. Bednar, Quinton L. Cook, D. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, Ronald A. Rasband, Gary E. Stevenson, Dale G. Renland, Garrett W. Gong, and Ulysses Sawadis. Those in favor, please manifest it. Any opposed may so indicate. It is proposed that we sustain the counselors in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary, if there be any, by the same sign. 
It is proposed that we release the following from their service as Area 70s. Elders Victorino Babida, L. Todd Budge, Peter M. Johnson, John A. McEwen, Mark L. Pace, James R. Rasband, and Benjamin M. Z. Dye. Those who wish to join us in expressing appreciation to these brethren for their dedicated service may do so with the uplifted hand. It is proposed that we release with heartfelt gratitude brothers Tad R. Callister, David Devin G. Durant, and Brian K. Ashton as the Sunday School General Presidency. All who wish to join us in expressing appreciation to these brethren for their remarkable service, please manifest it. It is proposed that we sustain the following as General Authority 70s. Ruben V. Alio, Jorge M. Alvarado, Hans T. Bohm, L. Todd Budge, Ricardo P. Jimenez, Peter M. Johnson, John A. McCune, James R. Rasband, Benjamin M. Z. Dye, and Alan R. Walker. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, by the same sign. It is proposed that we sustain the following as Area 70s. Solomon I. Aliche, Guillermo A. Alvarez, Julius V. Barrientos, Dale R. Barney, James H. Becker, Kevin G. Brown, Mark S. Bryce, M. Carlos Cabral, Dunstan G. B. Chadumbuka, Alan C. K. Chung, Christian C. Chikbundu, Paul N. Clayton, Karim Del Valle, Hiroyoki Domon, Bernard P. Donato, Mark D. Eddy, Zachary F. Evans, Henry J. Eyring, Sapenle Fa Along O Jr. David L. Frischnack, John J. Gallego, Ephraim R. Garcia, Robert Gordon, Mark A. Gottfredson, Thomas Honey, Michael J. Hess,
Glenn M. Holmes, Richard S. Hawkins, Titoti Ibanez, Akinori Ito, Jeremy R. Yagi, Kelly R. Johnson, Christopher Yun Su Kim, E. Maroni Klein, Inoke F. Kupu, Stephen Chi Kong Lai, Victor D. Lataro, Tarmo Lep, Isoko Atul Lozana, Kevin J. Lithgow, Edgar P. Montes, S. Ephraim Msani, Louise C. D. Kairos, Ifanomosarna Rasolun Drebe, Eduardo Resek, Thomas G. Roman, Ramon E. Sarmiento, Jonathan S. Schmidt, Vai Sikahema, Donaldson Silva, Luis Espina, Carlos G. Sufert, Taiola Lee, Sergio O. R. Vargas, and Marcus Sars. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, if any, thank you. It is proposed that we sustain Mark L. Pace to serve as Sunday School General President, with Milton Darocha Camargo as First Counselor and Jan Eric Newman as Second Counselor. Those in favor may manifest it. Any opposed may so signify. It is proposed that we sustain the other general authorities, Area 70s, and general auxiliary presidencies as presently constituted. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, if any. President Nelson, the voting has been noted. We invite those who may have opposed any of the proposals to contact their stake presidents. Brothers and sisters, we thank you for your continued faith and prayers in behalf of the leaders of the Church. We now invite the new General Authority 70s and the new Sunday School General Presidency to take their seats on the rostrum.
As announced, Kevin R. Jurgensen will read the Church Audit Report for 2018. To the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Dear Brethren, Directed by Revelation, as recorded in Section 120 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes, composed of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the Presiding Bishopric, authorizes the expenditure of Church funds. Church entities disperse funds in accordance with approved budgets, policies, and procedures. Church auditing, which consists of credentialed professionals and is independent of all other Church departments, has responsibility to perform audits for the purpose of providing reasonable assurance regarding contributions received, expenditures made, and safeguarding of Church assets. Based upon audits performed, Church auditing is of the opinion that in all material respects, contributions received, expenditures made, and assets of the Church for the year 2018 have been recorded and administered in accordance with approved Church budgets, policies, and accounting practices. The Church follows the practices taught to its members of living within a budget, avoiding debt, and saving against a time of need. Respectfully submitted, Church Auditing Department, Kevin R. Jurgensen, Managing Director. The choir will now favor us with I Stand All Amazed. Following the singing, we will be pleased to hear from President M. Russell Ballard, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Matthias Held of the Seventy.
My brothers and sisters, it is wonderful. It's hard for me to believe that it was 71 years ago, in 1948, that I was a missionary in England, and 44 years ago that my wife Barbara and I took our family to Canada when I was president of the Canada-Toronto Mission. While serving there in 1976, I was called to the First Quorum in the 70, and unexpectedly in 1985, I was called to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Unlike my previous callings that included a future releases, my release from my calling to the Twelve is not the best option right now. <laughs> However, I pray the day will come only after I've finished all the Lord has called me to do. Thinking about my last 43 years of service as a general authority and the privilege I've had to minister to Heavenly Father's children, I've come to realize more fully that He wants all of His children to find peace, joy, and happiness in their lives. The Prophet Lehi taught men and women are that they might have joy. There are many reasons why peace, joy, and happiness may elude us in this life, including poverty and war and natural disasters and unexpected setbacks in employment, health, and family relationships. But even though we cannot control those eternal forces that impact our lives here on earth as we strive to become faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can find peace, joy, and happiness despite the world troubles that swirl around us. One of my children once said, Dad, I wonder if I will ever be able to make it. I responded, all Heavenly Father acts of us, asks of us is to do the very best we can each day. Brothers and sisters, do the very best you can, day after day, and before you know it, you'll come to realize that your Heavenly Father knows you and that He loves you. And when you know that, really know it, your life will have real purpose and meaning, and you'll be filled with peace and joy. As the light of the world, the Savior said, Whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Jesus is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other name given whereby we can be saved. Wherefore, all men and women must take upon them the name which is given of the Father. The scriptures teach us that Satan desires to lead people into darkness. His every effort is to shut out the light and truth of Jesus Christ and His gospel. As Lehi taught his children, the devil seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. If Heavenly Father's work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men and women, Lucifer's work is to bring to pass the misery and endless woe for God's children. Sin and transgression dim the light of Christ in our lives. That's why our quest 
is to bask in the light of Christ, which brings peace, joy, and happiness. In the last 18 months, the Lord has inspired His prophet and the apostles to implement a number of wonderful adjustments. However, I worry that the spiritual purposes of these adjustments might become lost in the excitement about the changes themselves. Joseph F. Smith said, The true, pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored. We are responsible for maintaining it upon the earth. He added that the true, pure, and simple gospel is the saving doctrine of Christ. In the Articles of Faith, the Prophet Joseph Smith taught that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. The first principles of the gospel are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. His brother Hiram taught, preach them over and over again. You will find that day after day new ideas and additional light concerning them will be revealed to you. You can enlarge upon them to comprehend them clearly. Clearly, You will then be able to make them more plainly understood by those you teach." Close quote. The best ways for us to see the spiritual purposes of the churches is to live the true, pure, and simple teachings of Christ and also apply the Savior's two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Obedience to those two commandments provides a way to experience more peace and joy. When we love and serve the Lord and love and serve our neighbors, we will naturally feel more happiness that comes to us in no better way. Loving God and loving our neighbors is a doctrinal foundation of ministering, home-centered church-supported learning, Sabbath day spiritual worship, and the work of salvation on both sides of the veil, supported in the Relief Societies and the Elders' Quorums. All of these things are based on the divine commandments to love God and to love our neighbors. Can there be anything more basic, more fundamental, and more simple than that? Living the true, pure, and simple gospel plan will allow us more time to visit the widows, the widowers, the orphans, the lonely, the sick, and poor. We will find peace, joy, and happiness in our life when serving the Lord and our neighbors. The Sabbath day adjustments that emphasize home-centered, church-supported gospel learning and studying are an opportunity to renew our spirit and our devotion to God within the walls of our own homes. What possibly could be more simple, basic, and profound? Brothers and sisters, can you see that learning and teaching the gospel in our families is an important way to find peace and happiness in our lives? Speaking of the Sabbath, the Savior said, 
For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay thine devotions unto the Most High. He added that thy joy may be full through rejoicing and prayer. Ye should do these things with thanksgiving and with cheerful hearts and countenance and with a glad heart and a cheerful countenance. Please note some of the key words in this revelation. Joy, rejoicing, thanksgiving, cheerful hearts, glad heart, and cheerful countenance. It sounds to me like Sabbath day observance should bring a smile on all of our faces. As we minister in the higher and holier way, please consider how essential it is that we greet everyone who comes to our church meetings, especially new members and visitors. We should all enjoy singing the hymns and listening carefully to the words of the sacrament prayers with an open heart and mind. Testimonies of faith in our fast and testimony meetings are led by a member of the bishopric who shares a brief testimony focused on the plan of happiness and the true, pure, and simple gospel of Christ. All others should follow that example. We need to remember that there are other appropriate places to tell stories or share travel adventures. As we keep our testimonies simple and focused on the gospel of Christ, he will provide spiritual renewal as we share our testimonies with one another. Effective ministering is best viewed through the focused lens of loving God and loving our neighbors. Simply stated, we minister because we love our Heavenly Father and His children. Our ministering efforts will be more successful if we keep our ministering simple. The most joy comes from the simple things of life. So we need to be careful not to think that more needs to be added to any of the adjustments we have received to build faith and strong testimonies in the hearts of God's children. Let's not complicate things with additional meetings, expectations, or requirements. Keep it simple. It is in the simplicity that you will find peace, joy, and happiness that I have been talking about. For years, the leadership purposes of the General Church Handbook and Handbook 2 are outcomes that are clear and simple, from which I quote, Leaders, encourage every member to receive all essential priesthood ordinances, keep the associated covenants, and qualify for exaltation and eternal life. Adults, encourage each adult to be worthy to receive the ordinances of the temple. Teach all adults to identify their ancestors and perform vicarious temple ordinances for them. Youth, help prepare each young man to receive the Melchizedek priesthood, to receive the ordinances of the temple, and to be worthy to serve a full-time mission. Help prepare each young woman to be worthy to make and keep sacred covenants and receive the ordinances of the temple. Strengthen youth through participation in meaningful activities. All members help priesthood 
and auxiliary leaders, ward councils, ward and full-time missionaries, and members work cooperatively in a balanced effort to rescue individuals, strengthen families, and church units, increase priesthood activity, and gather Israel through conversion, retention, and activation, teach members to provide for themselves and their families, and to assist the poor and the needy in the Lord's way." Close quote. My service in the Church has blessed me with many remarkable and special spiritual experiences. I am a witness that the Lord directs His Church to accomplish His purposes. I have received divine guidance far beyond my capacity. The joy of gospel living for me has been centered on the true, pure, and simple doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have served under the keys and directions of six prophets and Church presidents from Spencer W. Kimball to Russell M. Nelson. I testify that each one of them was and is God's chosen prophet. They have taught us essential principles about the Church and the gospel and the doctrine of Christ. President Nelson is carrying the Lord's work forward at a breathtaking pace. I say breathtaking because he's the only one of the apostles who's older than me, and I'm having a difficult time keeping up with him. <laughs> I'm a witness that the priesthood keys and the mantle of a prophet of God are upon him. President Nelson teaches the pure, the true, the pure and simple gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear my testimony that Jesus is the Christ, and this is His Church, of which I testify humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, the Lord has repeatedly told us to seek learning even by study and also by faith. We can receive light and understanding not only through the logical reasoning of our minds, but also through the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Ghost. This additional source of knowledge has not always been part of my life. My dear wife Irene and I joined the Church 31 years ago when we were newly married. We had both grown up in Colombia, but a few months after our marriage, my career took us to live in Germany. We were very young and had great hopes and expectations. It was an especially exciting and happy time for us. While I was concentrated on my career, Irene was feeling that we would receive some kind of message from heaven without knowing how or when. So she started letting into our home all kinds of door-to-door salespeople with encyclopedias, vacuum cleaners, cookbooks, kitchen appliances, and so on, always waiting for that unique message. One evening she told me that two young men in dark suits had knocked on our door and that she had felt a very clear and distinct impression to let them in. They had said that they wanted to talk to her about God 
but would come back again when I was also at home. Could this be the expected message? They began to visit us, and with their guidance, we read in the scriptures and came to understand the crucial importance of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Redeemer. We soon regretted that we had been baptized as little babies, which had not been a conscious covenant. However, being baptized again would also mean becoming members of this new church. So first, we really needed to understand everything about it. But how could we know if what the missionaries were telling us about the Book of Mormon, about Joseph Smith, and about the plan of salvation was actually all true? Well, we had understood from the words of the Lord that we could know them by their fruits. So, in a very systematic manner, we started examining the Church by looking for those fruits with the eyes of our very rational minds. What did we see? Well, we saw friendly and happy people and wonderful families who understood that we are meant to feel joy in this life and not just suffering and misery. A church that does not have a paid clergy, but one in which members themselves accept assignments and responsibilities. A church where Jesus Christ and families are at the center of everything, where members fast once a month and donate to help the poor and needy, where healthy habits are promoted, teaching us to abstain from harmful substances. In addition, we like the emphasis on personal growth, on education, on hard work and self-reliance. We learned about the remarkable humanitarian program, and we were impressed by the general conferences with the wonderful music and profound spiritual principles shared there. Seeing all this, we could find no fault in the Church. On the contrary, we liked everything we saw very much. However, we still could not decide to be baptized because we wanted to know everything before doing so. But even in our indecision, the Lord was patiently pre preparing us. He was molding us and He was helping us to discover that we should learn to discern the truth not only through our rational minds, but also through the very still and small voice of the Spirit, which speaks especially to our hearts. That voice and the resulting feeling came one evening after ten months of learning the Gospel when we read in Mosiah 18, As ye are desirous to bear one another's burdens and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against, against being baptized in the name of the Lord? That passage from the Book of Mormon entered our hearts and souls, and we suddenly felt and knew that there was really no reason not to be baptized. We realized that the desires mentioned in these verses were also the wishes of our hearts, and, those, and that those things were what really mattered. They were more important than understanding everything because we already knew enough. We had always relied on a guiding hand of a loving Heavenly Father and were confident that He would continue to guide us. So that same day, we set up a date for our baptism and soon we were baptized, finally. What did we learn from that experience? First, we learned that we can fully trust in a loving Heavenly Father 
who is constantly trying to help us become the person he knows we can become. We confirmed the profound truth of his words when he said, I will give unto the children of man line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth I will give more. And second, we learned that in addition to our rational minds, another dimension to gaining knowledge can give us guidance and understanding. It is the still and soft voice of His Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts and also to our minds. I like to compare this principle with our visual capacity. Our Father in Heaven has, not, has, not given, has given us not only one, but two physical eyes. We can see adequately with only one eye, but the second eye provides us with another perspective. When both perspectives are put together in our brains, they produce a three-dimensional image of our surroundings. Likewise, we have been given two sources of information through our physical and spiritual capacities. Our mind produces one perception through our physical senses and through our reasoning, but through the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Father has also provided us with a second perspective, which is really the most important and true one because it comes directly from Him. But since the whisperings of the Spirit are often so subtle, many people are not consciously aware of that additional source. When these two perspectives are then combined in our souls, one complete picture shows the reality of things as they truly are. In fact, through the additional perspective of the Holy Ghost, certain realities, as pictured exclusively through our mental understanding, can be exposed as deceiving or plainly wrong. Remember the words of Moroni, By the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. In my 31 years as member of the Church, I have experienced many times that if we rely only on our rational mind and deny or neglect the spiritual understanding we can receive through the whisperings and impressions of the Holy Ghost, it is as if we were going through life with only one eye. But, figuratively speaking, we have been actually given two eyes. Only the combination of both views can give us the true and complete picture of all truths and of everything we experience in our lives, as well as of the whole and profound understanding of our identity and purpose as children of a living Heavenly Father. I am reminded of what President Nelson taught us a year ago when he said that, quote, in coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost, close quote. I have come to know with absolute certainty that we have a loving Father in Heaven, and we all agreed to come to this earth as part of a divine plan. That Jesus is the Christ, He lives and is my Savior and Redeemer. I know that Joseph, a humble farm boy, was called and became the mighty prophet who initiated this, the dispensation of the fullness of times, with all of its keys, power, and authority of the Holy Priesthood. I know that the Book of Mormon is a second witness of Jesus Christ and that families are meant to remain together forever. 
and I know that our Lord Jesus Christ leads this, his restored Church, through our living prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, today. These and many other precious truths have become spiritual building blocks of what God is helping me to become. And I look forward to the many new teachings that He still wants me and you to receive as we go through this wonderful life and learn even by study and also by faith. I know these things to be true and testify of them. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. The congregation will now join with the choir in singing Praise to the Lord the Almighty. After the singing, we will hear from Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elders Takashiwada and David P. Homer of the Seventy. Following their remarks, the choir will sing Jesus once of humble birth. This is the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus was taken before Pilate in the judgment hall. Art thou the king of the Jews? Pilate condescendingly asked. Jesus responded, My kingdom is not of this world. I came into the world that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate cynically asked, What is truth? In today's world, the question, what is truth, can be painfully complex to the secular mind. A Google search for what is truth brings more than a million responses. We have more available information on our cell phones than in all the books of a brick-and-mortar library. We live with information and opinion overload. Enticing and alluring voices pursue us at every turn. Caught in today's confusion, it is no wonder that so many consign themselves to the spoken words spoken 2,500 years ago by Protagoras to the young Socrates. What is true for you, he said, is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. Blessed with the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, we humbly declare that there are some things that are completely and absolutely true. These eternal truths are the same for every son and daughter of God. The scriptures teach truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. Truth looks backward and forward, expanding the perspective of our small point in time. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth shows us the way to eternal life, and it comes only through our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus Christ teaches us how to live, and through his atonement and resurrection, he offers us forgiveness from our sins and immortality beyond the veil. This is absolutely true. He teaches us that it does not matter if we are rich or poor, prominent or unknown, sophisticated or simple. Rather, our mortal quest is to strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to choose good over evil, and to keep his commandments. While we celebrate the innovations of science and medicine, the truths of God go far beyond these discoveries. In opposition to the truths of eternity, there always have been counterfeits to distract God's children from the truth. The arguments of the adversary are always the same. Listen to these voices 2,000 years ago. You cannot know things that you do not see. Whatever a person does is no crime. It is not reasonable that such a being as Christ would be the Son of God. What you believe is a foolish tradition. Sounds like today, doesn't it? With the restoration of the gospel, God has given us a way to learn and know essential spiritual truths. We learn them through the Holy Scriptures, through our personal prayers and our own experiences, through the counsel of living prophets and apostles, 
and through the guidance of the Holy Ghost, who can help us to know the truth of all things. We can know the things of God as we seek them spiritually. Paul said, The things of God knoweth no man, except he has the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Look at this art by Michael Murphy. From this perspective, you would hardly believe that it is an artistic rendition of a human eye. However, as you look at the dots from a different perspective, you see the beauty of the artist's creation. Likewise, we see the spiritual truths of God through the perspective of an eye of faith. Paul said, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I did not know the subject of Elder Held's sermon until he just gave it. But didn't he teach us beautifully about the eye of faith? The scriptures, our prayers, our own experiences, modern prophets, and the gift of the Holy Ghost bring us the spiritual perspective of truth necessary for our journey here on earth. Let's look at the proclamation of the family through the eye of faith. President Gordon B. Hinckley introduced the family of proclamation to the world with this statement. With so much sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn you. The proclamation begins. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. These are eternal truths. You and I are not an accident of nature. I love these words. In the pre-mortal realm, spirit sons and daughters knew and worshipped God as their eternal Father and accepted His plan. We lived before our birth. Our individual identity is stamped in us forever. In ways we don't fully understand, our spiritual growth there in the premortal world influences who we are here. We accepted God's plan. We knew that we would experience difficulties, pain, and sorrow upon the earth. We also knew that the Savior would come and that as we proved ourselves worthy, we would rise in the resurrection, having glory added upon our heads forever and ever. The proclamation is direct. We declare the means by which mortal life is created to be divinely appointed. We affirm the sanctity of life and of its importance in God's eternal plan. Our Father's plan encourages a husband and a wife to bring children into the world and obligates us to speak in defense of the unborn. If we pick and choose what we accept in the proclamation, we cloud our eternal view 
putting too much importance on our experience here and now by prayerfully pondering the proclamation through the eye of faith. We better understand how the principles are beautifully connected, supporting one another, revealing our Father's plan for his children. Should we really be surprised when the Lord's prophets declare his will and for some questions remain? Of course, some reject the voice of the prophets immediately, but others prayerfully ponder their honest questions, questions that will be settled with patience and an eye of faith. If the proclamation had been revealed in a different century, there would still have been questions just different questions than those of today. One purpose of prophets is to help us in resolving sincere questions. Prior to being the president of the church, President Russell M. Nelson said this, Prophets see ahead. They see the harrowing dangers the adversary has placed or will yet place in our path. Prophets also foresee the grand possibilities and privileges awaiting those who listen with the intent to obey. I testify to the truth and spiritual power of the united voice of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. In my lifetime, we have seen a dramatic change in the world's beliefs about many of the principles taught in the proclamation. During my teenage and early married years, Many in the world walked away from the Lord's standard we call the law of chastity, that sexual relations are to occur only between a man and woman who are lawfully married. In my 20s and 30s, many walked away from the sacred protection of the unborn as abortion became more acceptable. In more recent years, many have walked away from God's law that marriage is a sacred union between a man and a woman. Watching many walking away from the boundaries the Lord has set reminds us of that day in Capernaum when the Savior declared his divinity, and sadly, many of his disciples walked away. The Savior then turned to the twelve. Will ye also go away? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. There are so many, young and old, who are loyal and true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though their own current experience does not fit neatly inside the family proclamation. Children whose lives have been shaken by divorce, youth whose friends mock the law of chastity, divorced women and men who have been gravely wounded by the unfaithfulness of a spouse, husbands and wives who are unable to have children, women and men who are married to a spouse who does not share their faith in the restored gospel, single women and men who, for various reasons, have been unable to marry. One friend of nearly 20 years, whom I admire greatly, is not married because of same-sex attraction. 
He has remained true to his temple covenants, has expanded his creative and professional talents, and has served nobly in both the church and the community. He recently said to me, I can sympathize with those in my situation who choose not to keep the law of chastity in the world in which we live. But didn't Christ ask us to be not of this world? It is clear that God's standards are different from those of the world. For those desiring to please God, faith, patience, and diligence are surely needed. Often, the laws of man move outside the laws of God. My wife Kathy and I have known a single sister, now in her mid-40s, who is gifted in her professional abilities and serves valiantly in her ward. She, too, has kept the laws of God. She wrote, I dreamed of the day I would be blessed with a husband and children. At times, my situation brings feelings of being forgotten and alone. But I try to keep the focus, on what, focus off what I don't have and instead on what I do have and how I can help others. Service to my extended family in my ward and in the temple has helped me. I am not forgotten or alone because I am part of, and we are all part of, a larger family. Some will say, you don't understand my situation. I may not, but I testify there is one who does understand. There is one who knows your burdens because of his sacrifice made in the garden and on the cross. As you seek him and keep his commandments, I promise you that he will bless you and lift the burdens too heavy to bear alone. He will give you eternal friends and opportunities to serve. More importantly, he will fill you with the powerful spirit of the Holy Ghost and shine his heavenly approval upon you. No choice, no alternative that denies the companionship of the Holy Ghost or the blessings of eternity is worthy of our consideration. I know the Savior lives. I witness that he is the source of all truth that really matters and that he will fulfill all the blessings he has promised to those who keep his commandments. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Our Heavenly Father loves us. He has provided a perfect plan for us to enjoy his blessings. In this life, we are all invited to come unto Christ and receive the restored gospel of Jesus Christ through baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and faithfully living the gospel. Nephi describes our commitment to be baptized as entering a straight and narrow path, and he reminds us to continue to press forward with the steadfastness in Christ, feasting upon the words of Christ, and endure to the end in order to receive all the blessings Heavenly Father has in store for us. Nephi further reminds us that if we will feast upon the words of Christ, they'll tell us all things we should do, 
and that will be empowered to overcome the fiery darts of the adversary. When I was young, I thought that the feasting was simply having a big meal with rice, sushi, and soy sauce. <laughs> I now know true feasting is more than enjoying a delicious meal. It's an experience of joy, nourishment, celebration, sharing, expressing love to families and loved ones, communicating our thanksgiving to God, and building relationship while enjoying abundant, incredibly delicious food. I believe when we feast upon the words of Christ, we ought to be thinking of the same kind of experience. Feasting upon the scriptures is not just reading them. It should bring us real joy and build our relationship with the Savior. This is clearly taught in the Book of Mormon. Recall Lehi's dream where he saw a tree whose fruit is desirable to make one happy. This fruit represents the love of God. And as Lehi tastes the fruit, it was sweet above all that he ever before tasted. It filled his soul, his soul with exceeding great joy. And it's something he wants to share with his family. When we feast, we'll also likely find that the amount or kind of food we have may not matter if our hearts are filled with gratitude. Lehi's family lived on raw meat in the wilderness, but Nephi described this difficult trial saying, so great were the blessings of the Lord that our women were strong and were able to bear children without murmuring. Feasting sometimes involves experimenting and tasting. Alma talks about a good seed being planted in our hearts. As we experiment on it, we will realize the seed begins to be delicious. The blessings of feasting upon the words of Christ are powerful and life-changing. There are three in particular I would like to invite you to apply in your life. First, the words of Christ can help us increase our spiritual capacity to receive revelation and safely guide us through our life. Mormon teaches that the words of Christ have a great tendency to lead the people to do that which is just, and that they were more powerful than anything the sword can accomplish. As I have searched God's wisdom in dealing with my own challenges, always, as I have tried the virtue of the Word of God, I felt inspired and enabled to make wise decisions, overcome temptations, and bless my life with the increased faith in Christ and love for those around me. Our prophet, Russell M. Nelson, has taught us that in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. Needed revelation will come as we try the virtue of the word, and that word will be more powerful than anything else we could try or imagine. Second, when we struggle with our own identity, and lack of self-esteem, the pleasing word of God in the scriptures will help us know who we really are and give us strength beyond our own. Recognizing my identity as God's child was one of the sweetest moments I have ever experienced. In my early teenage years, I didn't know anything about the teachings of the Savior. When I first read the New Testament, the words of Christ truly healed my wounded soul. I realized that I was not alone and that I'm a child of God. As I recognized my true identity before God, I realized my infinite potential 
through Christ's atonement. Enos likewise shared his personal experience of the enlightenment that comes from contemplating the words of Christ. As Enos let the words that his father taught him regarding eternal life and the joy of the saints sink deep into his heart, his soul hungered, and he kneeled down before his maker in mighty prayer. In that prayer, he came to know the Savior and learned that we have great worth and are loved and can be forgiven of our mistakes and are truly children of God. Third, we can lift the lives of others through the words of Christ. Just as Enos had his own time and place where the words of Christ touched his heart, the Lord will do his part to touch the hearts of those with whom we wish to share the gospel. Many of us may have felt discouraged when we tried to invite someone to hear the gospel because our desired result did not follow. Regardless of the outcome, the Lord invites us to open our mouth and share the gospel message with him. Two years ago, the Lord touched my dear mother's heart, which helped her decide to receive the ordinance of baptism. I had waited for that day to come for almost 35 years. In order for her to make that decision, many members of the church truly ministered to her as Christ would. One Sunday, she felt she should go to church. She followed the prompting. While she sat on the front row and waited for the sacrament service to begin, a four-year-old boy stood in front of her and looked at her. She greeted him with a smile. The little boy left her presence abruptly and walked back to his own seat, which was on the other side of the row where my mother was seated. This little boy picked up something from his seat and came back and handed my mother a hymn book and walked back to his seat. My mother noticed that hymn book was placed on every other chair in the chapel. She could have easily picked one up from the chair next to her. However, she was very impressed with the boy's innocent act of kindness, which he learned in his home and at church. It was a tender moment for her. She had a strong impression that God was inviting her to come and follow the Savior. She felt she should be baptized. This little boy did not seek recognition for what he did, but he simply did his best to live the word of God and to love his neighbor. His kindness created an important change of heart in my mother. The words of Christ will profoundly touch hearts and open the hearts of those who do not yet see him. On the road to Amias, two disciples walked with Jesus. They were sad and did not comprehend that the Savior had triumphed over death. In their grief, they did not recognize that the living Christ was walking with them. Though Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, they still did not recognize him as the resurrected Savior until they sat and broke bread with them. Then did their eyes open. As we or our friends, associates, and neighbors feast and break bread with him, our eyes of understanding will open. When the disciples at Amias reflected on their time with the resurrected Savior, they said that their hearts burned within them while he opened the scriptures to them. This would be true for all of us. In conclusion, I bear testimony that feasting upon the words of Christ can happen at any time and on any occasion if we prepare our hearts to receive them. Feasting upon the words of Christ will bring life-sustaining revelation, 
reaffirm our true identity and worth before God as his child and lead our friends unto Christ and everlasting life. Let me end by echoing the invitation of Nephi when he said, ye must press forward with the steadfastness in Christ, in Christ, Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and the love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the words of Christ and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Earlier this morning, my wife's brother gave her a a note that she had written to her mother many years ago. In part, that note read, Dear Mother, I'm sorry I did not bear my testimony today, but I love you, Nancy. As we went to lunch, I thought that was an interesting thing, and I, uh, I sat down and I wrote a note, and it said, Dear President Nelson, I'm sorry I didn't give my talk today, but I love you. And somehow that didn't feel right. And so here we are, and I'm happy to add my words to those that uh, have been spoken in this session today. Many years ago, I traveled on a small plane with a newly certified pilot at the controls. At the end of our flight, we were cleared to land. But as we neared the ground, I heard an alarm in the cockpit warn the pilot to pull up. The pilot looked to the more experienced co-pilot, who pointed in a downward direction away from the runway and said, Now. Our plane rapidly moved to the left and down, then climbed back to an appropriate altitude, re-entered the landing pattern, and arrived safely at our destination. We later learned that another aircraft had been cleared for takeoff. Had we followed the instructions of the alarm, we would have veered into rather than away from the oncoming plane. This experience taught me two important lessons. First, at critical moments in our lives, we will hear multiple voices competing for our attention. And second, it is vital that we listen to the right ones. We live in a world with many voices seeking our attention. With all the breaking news, tweets, blogs, podcasts, and compelling advice from Alexa, Siri, and others, we can find it difficult to know which voices to trust. Sometimes we crowdsource guidance in our lives, thinking the majority will provide the best source of truth. Other times we halt between two opinions, choosing to be neither cold nor hot. Still other times we follow what is convenient focus on a single voice or issue to guide us, or rely exclusively upon our own ability to think. While each of these approaches can be helpful, experience teaches that they are not always reliable. What is popular is not always what is best. Halting between two opinions brings no direction. Convenience rarely leads to things that matter. Fixation on a single voice or issue can impair our ability to see, and relying solely upon our own thinking can lead us into a hyper-intellectual stupor of thought. If we are not careful, the wrong voices can draw us away from the gospel center to places where faith is difficult to sustain, and we find little more than emptiness, bitterness, and dissatisfaction. 
Let me demonstrate what I mean by using an analogy and a scriptural example. Mountain climbers commonly refer to altitudes above 8,000 meters as the death zone because at those heights there is not enough oxygen to sustain life. There is a spiritual equivalent to the death zone. If we spend too much time in faithless places, seemingly well-intended voices deprive us of the spiritual oxygen we need. In the Book of Mormon, we read of Korahor, who had such an experience. He enjoyed great popularity because his teachings were pleasing to the carnal mind. He said that parents and prophets teach foolish traditions designed to limit freedom and perpetuate ignorance. He argued that people should be free to do whatever they choose because commandments are nothing more than conveniently contrived restrictions. To him, belief in the Atonement of Jesus Christ was the effect of a frenzied mind created by belief in a being who could not exist because he could not be seen. Korahor created so much unrest that he was brought before the chief judge and the high priest. There he rose up in great swelling words, criticizing the leaders and demanding a sign. A sign was given. He was struck so that he could not speak. Korahor then realized that he had been deceived, and thinking of precious truths that he had abandoned, he lamented, I always knew. Korahor then begged for food until he was trampled to death by a group of Zoramites. The final verse in his story contains this sober reflection. And thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but does speedily drag them down to hell. Because our Heavenly Father wants better for us, He makes it possible for us to hear His voice. Most often, we hear Him through impressions given by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He witnesses of the Father and the Son, and was sent to teach us all things, and will show unto us all things what we should do. The Spirit speaks to different people in different ways, and He may speak to the same person in different ways at different times. As a result, learning the many ways He speaks to us is a lifelong quest. Sometimes He speaks to our mind and in our heart in a voice that is small, yet powerful, piercing them that hear to the center. Other times His impressions occupy our minds or press upon our feelings. Other times our bosom will burn within us. Still other times He fills our souls with joy, enlightens our minds, or speaks peace to our troubled hearts. We will find our Father's voice in many places. We will find it when we pray, when we study the scriptures, and when we attend church, engage in faithful discussions, or go to the temple. Surely we will find it in conference this very weekend. Today we sustained 15 men as prophets, seers, and revelators. Their spirituality and experience give them a unique perspective that we desperately need. Their messages are easy to find and spoken with absolute clarity. They tell us what God wants us to know, whether it is popular or not. Seeking His voice in any one of these places is good, but seeking it in many of them is even better. And when we hear it, we need to follow the direction that is given. The Apostle James said, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. And President Thomas S. Monson once taught, We watch, we wait. We listen for that still, small voice. When it speaks, wise men and women obey. 
Early in my professional life, Sister Homer and I were asked to accept a change in job assignment. At the time, it seemed to us a huge decision. We studied, we fasted, and we prayed, but an answer was slow to come. Eventually, we made a decision and pressed forward. As we did, we felt settled and soon learned that it was one of the best decisions we had ever made. As a result, we have learned that answers are sometimes slow to come. This can be because it's not the right time, because an answer is not needed, or because God trusts us to make the decision ourselves. Elder Richard G. Scott once taught that we should be grateful for such times and made this promise. When you're living your life worthily and your choice is consistent with the Savior's teachings and you need to act, proceed with trust. God will not let you proceed too far without a warning impression if you have made the wrong decision. And so we need to decide which among all the different voices we will obey. Will we follow the unreliable voices advocated by the world? Or will we do the work required to allow our Father's voice to guide us in our decisions and protect us from danger? The more diligently we seek His voice, the easier it becomes to hear. It is not that His voice gets louder, but that our ability to hear it has increased. The Savior has promised that if we hearken unto His precepts and lend an ear unto His counsel, He will give us more. I testify that this, is, that this promise is true for each of us. Nearly a year ago, we lost my older brother in a tragic automobile accident. John's early years were full of promise and accomplishment. But as he grew older, a broken body and uncooperative mind made life very difficult. While the healing he hoped for didn't come in this life, John nonetheless held to his faith, determined to endure as best he could to the end. Now, I know that John was not perfect, but I have wondered what it was that gave him such endurance. Many voices invited him into the cynical fringe, but he chose not to go. Instead, he did his best to anchor his life at the Gospel Center. He lived his life there because he knew he would find the voice of his Master there. He lived his life there because he knew it was there that he would be taught. Brothers and sisters, in a world with so many competing voices, I testify that our Heavenly Father has made it possible for us to hear and follow His. If we are diligent, He and His Son will give us the direction we seek, the strength we need, and the happiness we all desire. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
We are grateful for all who have spoken to us this afternoon and for the beautiful music that has been provided. We remind the brethren of the general priesthood meeting, which will commence in the conference center this evening at 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The nationwide music and the spoken word broadcast will be tomorrow morning from 9.30 to 10 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The Sunday morning session of conference will immediately follow. Our concluding speaker for this session will be Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close the meeting by singing, Jesus, lover of my soul. The benediction will then be offered by Sister Lisa Harkness, first counselor in the primary general presidency. I was doing just fine until I saw those tears in the eyes of those young people in this choir. And those tears are a more eloquent sermon uh, than I could ever give. Looking up from water's edge, past the eager crowds seeking baptism at his hand, John, called the Baptist, saw in the distance his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, striding resolutely toward him to make a request for that ordinance at his hand. Reverently, but audible enough for those nearby to hear, John uttered the admiration that still moves us Two millennia later, behold the Lamb of God. It's instructive that this long prophesied forerunner to Jesus did not call him Jehovah or Savior or Redeemer or even the Son of God, all of which were applicable titles. No, John chose the earliest and perhaps most commonly recognized image in the religious tradition of his people. He used the figure of a sacrificial lamb offered in atonement for the sins and sorrows of a fallen world and all the fallen people in it. Please indulge me in recalling just a little of that history. After expulsion from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve faced a devastating future. Having opened the door to mortality and temporal life for us, they had closed the door to immortality and eternal lives for themselves. Due to a transgression they had consciously chosen to make in our behalf, they now faced physical death and spiritual banishment separation from the presence of God forever. What were they to do? Would there be a way out of this plight? 
We're not certain just how much these two were allowed to remember of the instruction they received while still in the garden, but they did remember they were to regularly offer for a sacrifice unto God a pure, unblemished lamb, the first male born of their flock. Later, an angel came to explain that this sacrifice was a type, it was a prefiguration of the offering that would be made in their behalf by the Savior of the world who was to come. This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, the angel said. Wherefore, thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Fortunately, there was going to be a way out and a way up. In the pre-mortal councils of heaven, God had promised Adam and Eve and all the rest of us that help would come from his pure, unblemished, firstborn son, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, as the Apostle John would later describe him. By offering their own little symbolic lambs in mortality, Adam and his posterity were expressing their understanding and their dependence upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the Anointed One. Later, the wilderness tabernacle would become the setting for this ordinance, and after that, the temple that Solomon would build. Unfortunately, as a symbol of genuine repentance and faithful living, this ritualistic offering of unblemished little lambs didn't work very well, as so much of the Old Testament reveals. The moral resolve that should have accompanied those sacrifices sometimes didn't last long enough for the blood to dry upon the stones. In any case, it didn't last long enough to preclude fratricide with Cain killing his brother Abel in the first generation. With such trials and troubles going on for centuries, no wonder the angels of heaven sang for joy when finally Jesus was born, the long-promised Messiah himself. Following his brief mortal ministry, this purest of all Passover sheep prepared his disciples for his death by introducing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, a more personal form of the ordinance that had been introduced just outside of Eden. There would still be an offering. It would still involve a sacrifice. But it would, it would be with symbolism much deeper, much more introspective and personal than the bloodletting of a firstborn lamb. To the Nephites, after his resurrection, the Savior said of this, You shall offer unto me no more the shedding of blood. You shall offer unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and the Holy Ghost. Therefore, repent. Repent. 
and be saved. My beloved brothers and sisters, with the exciting new emphasis on increased gospel learning in the home, it is crucial for us to remember that we are still commanded to go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. In addition to making time for more home-centered gospel instruction, our modified Sunday service is also to reduce the complexity of the meeting schedule in a way that properly emphasizes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as the sacred acknowledged focal point of our weekly worship experience. We are to remember in as personal a way as possible that Christ died from a heart broken by shouldering entirely alone the sins and sorrows of the human family. Inasmuch as we contributed to that fatal burden, such a moment demands our respect. Thus, we're encouraged to come to our services early and reverently, dressed appropriately for participation in a sacred ordinance, the sacred ordinance. Sunday best has lost a little of its meaning in our time, and out of esteem for him into whose presence we come, we ought to restore that tradition of dress and grooming when and where we can. As for punctuality, a late pass will always be lovingly granted to those blessed mothers who, with children and Cheerios and diaper bags trailing in marvelous disarray, are lucky to have made it to church at all. <laughs> Furthermore, there will be others who unavoidably find their ox in the mire on a Sunday morning. However, to this latter group we say, an occasional tardiness is understandable. But if the ox is in the mire every Sunday, then we strongly recommend that you sell the ox or fill the mire. In that same spirit, we make an apostolic plea for the reduction of clamor in the sanctuary of our buildings. We love to visit with each other. We are great visitors, and we should be. It's one of the joys of church attendance. But it ought not to be pursued so vocally in space specifically dedicated for worship. I fear visitors not of our faith are shocked by what can sometimes be noisy irreverence in a setting that is supposed to be characterized by prayer, revelation, hymns, and peace. Perhaps heaven is a little shocked as well. It will add to the spirit of our sacrament meetings if the presiding officers are on the stand well before it's to begin listening to the prelude music and reverently setting the example the rest of us ought to follow. If there's chatter on the stand, we should not be surprised at any chatter in the congregation. 
We congratulate those bishoprics who are eliminating announcements that detract from the spirit of our worship. I, for one, cannot imagine a priest such as Zacharias there in the ancient temple of the Lord about to participate in the one and only priestly privilege that would come to him in his entire lifetime. I just cannot picture him pausing before the altar to remind us that the Pinewood Derby is just six weeks away (laughs) and registration will soon be due. Brothers and sisters, this hour ordained of the Lord is the most sacred hour of our week. By commandment, we gather for the most universally received ordinance in the Church. It is in memory of him who asked if the cup he was about to drink could pass, only to soldier on because he knew that for our sake it could not pass. It will help us if we remember that a symbol of that cup is slowly making its way down the row toward us at the hand of an 11- or 12-year-old. When the sacred hour comes to present our sacrificial gift to the Lord, we do have our own sins and shortcomings to resolve. That's why we're there. But we might be more successful in such contrition if we're mindful of the other broken hearts and sorrowing spirits that surround us, seated not far away in any direction, are some who may have wept outwardly or inwardly through the entire sacramental hymn and the prayers of those priests. Might we silently take note of that and offer our little crust of comfort and our tiny cup of compassion, might we dedicate it to them. Or for the weeping, struggling member who's not in the service and except for some redemptive ministering on our part, won't be there next week either. Or for our brothers and sisters who are not members of the church at all, but are our brothers and sisters. There's no shortage of suffering in this world, inside the church and out. So look in any direction, and you'll find someone whose pain is seeming too heavy to bear and whose heartache seems never apparently to end. One way to always remember him would be to join the great physician in his never-ending task of lifting the load from those who are burdened and relieving the pain of those who are distraught. Beloved friends, as we unite across the globe each week in what is an increasingly sacred acknowledgement of Christ's majestic atoning gift to all humankind,
may we bring to the sacramental altar more tears for his sorrow and more pain at his grief. And then, as we reflect and pray and covenant anew, may we take from that sacred moment more patience in suffering, more praise for relief. For such patience and relief, for such holiness and hope, I pray for all of you in the name of him who broke the precious bread of forgiveness and poured the holy wine of redemption. Even Jesus Christ, the great and merciful and holy Lamb of God. Amen.
Our dear, eternal, heavenly Father, we, thy daughters and thy sons, with grateful reverence, express what's in our heart for this inspiring session of General Conference. We are thankful for the messages, the beautiful music, and the testimonies which helped us feel thy love for us. Father, we are so grateful to be living in this day, a day of continuing revelation, where we are guided by a prophet, even President Russell M. Nelson, and those others that thou hast called as prophets, seers, and revelators. Father, we are most humbly grateful for the loving, atoning sacrifice of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We love him. And pray now that the truths that we received this day might help us become his true disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been a broadcast of the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session was provided by a combined choir of students from Brigham Young University. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.